0: when they jumble jumping over hurdles slowing verbs like a turtle murky fool, like swirled in cake dough cold blood is with the sprogs I'm a boss flip the coin toss it draws some out of law some my brains get busted slinging letters into couplets mock up
1: the subject. this is that got me thinking and i'm Ellie Newman this week i've been thinking about compassion self-knowledge complicity prejudice perspective and racism I've been thinking about where we've been, how far we've come, and how far we have to go. My guest today is author and professor George Yancey. Mr. Yancey is a professor of philosophy at Emory University. He is the author, editor, and co-editor of over 18 books, and editor of the Philosophy of Race book series at Lexington Books, and is well known for his extensive interviews and articles on the subjects of race at The Stone. He has an M.A. from Yale, worked at the Philadelphia Tribune, where he wrote about hip-hop, culture, the meaning of death, and God, and then received his Ph.D. from a wonderful university uh, that I don't know how to pronounce the name of properly, uh, and I should have asked George when we were uh, doing the prep <laughs> just now. So, George, how do you pronounce the name of the university?
0: Yes, uh, Duquesne University. Duquesne. Some See? Some say DQS No, but SD, it's, but it's Duquesne, Duquesne,
1: which I've heard. Yeah. And I haven't knew what it was at. I was like, okay, I know I, this is going to be a place I know. Um, so welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, George was an extremely shy child, from his own description, who grew up in the Philadelphia projects and found solace and strength in philosophy and a telescope. And so I want to start there. Um, you had said there was is still that sense of being orphaned in a cosmos that remains disturbingly silent. And I thought, OK, existential terror. I know that. Mm. Um, d- did the telescope and philosophy help at the beginning or exacerbate that feeling?
0: I, I think that the, the telescope and the and philosophy probably exacerbated it um, because if, you, if I were to talk about, let's say I talk about the, the sort of formal pre-philosophical me, and by formal I mean before I actually discovered that there was a term called philosophy and that there was a field called philosophy. So I was this, you know, little kid in Richard Allen projects, and for those who don't know, it's a very impoverished area. Um, Bill Cosby grew up there years before I did, Again, very impoverished, low income. Um, I, I, as I recall, heroin was the huge drug at that time. I mean, you could play out in the street, and there would be drug needles uh, on the street. So there was fear of stepping on one of those. Uh, there were a lot of gang wars at that time. So I was growing up in in a space that was, you know, a kind of it was an urban enclave that was forgotten. So there was a way in which my entire environment, if you will. Was a kind of forgotten space, uh, an orphaned space, in terms of its its economics, in terms of its its social um, ambiance, right? How it looked, uh, uh, where we were located, and so on and so forth. Um, so for me, pre formal philosophical, I was this young kid who would always ask questions of his mother, who you know who raised him, uh, Baptist, who raised me, Baptist, and. Um, I would ask her questions like, does God exist? Uh, how do we know if God exists? And of course, here I am, maybe seven, eight years old, asking these questions. She would be very frustrated. Um, I remember the time when I realized that uh, there was something called death. You know, so for a while there in my life, I didn't realize that we actually died, that we were actually finite. But when that occurred to me, it was it was sort of a deep existential sting or Unfairness that I felt like a cosmic unfairness that I was only brought here to leave
1: and do you remember that moment? Like do you remember when that shifted?
0: Oh, absolutely Uh, it it was it was as if and it only increased later as I became a teenager, but it was as if um, I Had come to understand it, it rather it was as if I was living in a world that I had failed to truly understand. If you're familiar with Plato's cave, it was as if someone finally told me, you know, the allegory of the cave, that I was actually in a cave uh, and didn't realize it. So it was a, it was a, it, and, and as a result, it was this really weighty, um, gravity-filled moment of realization that we leave, that we are finite, which for me was very frightening, uh, not only because, you know, we would end, and I don't know what that would be like, but also, I think because my mom, uh, having raised me Baptist and and fairly fundamentalist, there was the view about uh, you know about um, the the view about hell and so on that came later, right. Um, and so the idea that we not only leave, but that there's a possibility that we could be you know damned for an eternity, just didn't seem right to me. Um, so, I'd say that when I discovered that there was this field called philosophy, um, before, before I discovered that I wanted to be a pilot, and I would often look through the P encyclopedia, so one day I was looking through the P encyclopedia and stumbled upon the term philosophy, which I noticed came from the, the, word, the Greek words philosophia, the love of wisdom, and I thought, my goodness, um, this is what I've been doing all this time. I've been asking my mother about questions of my finitude of death, of the truth of religious systems, does God exist? Um, and there's this other thing that happened, which, which I, I love telling. So my mom would have me say the, the, the children's prayer, prayer and now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And I recall I would get to the point where I'd talk about, and God bless my mother and my sister and my friends. So one night while down there, I asked my mom if it was okay to pray for the devil, which really freaked her out. And you can see why, right? Yeah, um, yet
1: it's, like, it, it's so monogamous and it's so generous and yeah, an, <laughs> and, and an actually more in true line with the word of God and the gospel and everything mm-hmm. that, that that actually makes sense.
0: No, absolutely. And I, I really like your term generous. That's really good because generous suggests a certain kind of giving, a certain kind of um, fluidity of care and concern and overflowing of of love, if you will, right? So here I am, this little kid who was worried about the soul of the devil. <laughs> it was thought, Well, is I'm being taught about redemption and God's love. Well, is it possible that no one is beyond redemption? And that so therefore for me it would it seemed only logical and compassionate, uh, to pray for the devil. So there I was saying at the very end, you know, and God bless the devil. But of course later in life you know, I discovered that's a deep, really deep, uh, deeply philosophical—sorry, uh, theological—question to pose about God's love and the the ever-givingness of that love, the omnibenevolence, vis-à-vis the question of of the devil's non-redemption.
1: And did the belief in God and the idea that there was sort of a plan after you left, did that help to ease the anxiety over the idea that we were going to leave someday?
0: That's a good question. Uh, Sometimes it did. Uh, It it did when I thought of the possibility of something, let's say, called heaven or an afterlife. But of course, given the binarism in Christianity, there was always heaven and then there was hell, right? So there was always this kind of striving, almost neurotic striving to be perfect, Uh, you know, in in case I were, you know, would, 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 would in some sense, uh, God would be looking at me. And, and right?
1: constant stress and constant external judgment with sort of every move, especially if you're a very conscious, self aware person. <laughs> you're like, oh my That's gosh, right. okay, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell with right. every action. <laughs> and,
0: and I have to say, as a very young boy, I was, I call it hyper aware mm-hmm. and hypersensitive. So that for me, then, it was a question of uh, self censoring so much to the point of it took on again a kind of neurotic um sort of performance and so in so in many ways it was it helped to the extent that i thought okay there's this place called heaven and but then it was very depressing to think that there was this place called hell and then how does one prevent going there right which then increased this kind of hyper awareness and and, and hypersensitivity um, but i would i would say that um that there's a way in which, again, philosophy sort of increased this notion of my own finitude, because despite the fact that there was this the possibility of something like heaven, it didn't ease the fact that at some point we had to die.
1: And were you aware with that sensitivity as a child, were you aware of the extremely high level of Stress and just the the constant, I would think, in lots of various chaos of being in in the projects and growing up there.
0: In, in terms of my, th- that, in, that, in
1: terms th- of you being the shy kid that's super sensitive and aware, that's asking these huge questions about your existence, and on top of that, I would guess that you were in a, a you know, if you're worried about stepping on heroin needles, that you're hmm. in a pretty stressful environment. I'm just wondering. If it just seemed normal or if you were aware of the high level of stress that you were sort of operating in day
0: to day. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. So there was not only so there was not only at home dealing with the, the problem of, you know, the the, the the possible imminence of going to hell and, and then self self-censoring and the hypersensitivity around that. And the deep anxiety, by the way, that that would cause, but there was also the physical environment in which I found myself. Which then, of course, for me, raises the question of theodicy, which is the question of how do you square God's goodness with the evil that exists in the world? So in some sense, not only was I feeling this existential angst about my own finitude, but also the existential angst about my own finitude in relationship to an environment that was so violent. You know, um, philosopher Cornell West talks about what he calls the death shutter, and he says that we all experience the death shudder. He talks about how he felt, and I assume that that's what I was feeling at a very young age—that there is this finitude that we can't be here forever, uh, and that we have to face that. And in facing that, it creates a great deal of anxiety. Of course, he he draws this out from the from the existentialist tradition. But then I want to 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 reframe that death shudder and talk about it in terms of the way in which uh, I was racialized within that particular space. In fact, the way in which the entire community were racialized as disposable being in that economic space. So there's a way in which not only was I confronted um, by my existential finitude, there was a way in which I was also confronted by my social finitude or the imminent possibility of being killed in in a very violent environment.
1: Well and not even the economic space, right? But with the color of your skin, your being. So you're being put in that stressful, constant sense of anxiety based on something that you can't or wouldn't want to, but can't change. Whereas if it was just purely economic yeah, you know, sure, just was just poverty, at least there'd be some idea that all right, well I can I can get out of this by my own um,
0: force. That, that's right. So so what you've got, I agree with you, is the, the intersection between the, the economic um, and also the racial and also the social. And this would play out in interesting ways. We can talk about this later mm-hmm. if you like. Yeah. When, for example, when I was in uh, in high school, I remember saying to a teacher, and this is the time when I wanted to be a pilot, uh, a white teacher, and I said uh, to him that I want I want to be a pilot, you know, I want to fly planes. And he looked at me and he said to me, Well, you know, George, um, there are not many blacks who are pilots. Why don't you think about being a bricklayer or a carpenter? So, you know, so not only Uh was there the economic oppressive dimension, not only was there the being and and, and now being black and being oppressed by a teacher who ought to have, have been so pedagogically giving to me, but in many ways he truncated my being and truncated the possibilities of what I could become by saying to me that, you know, well, you should think about being a carpenter, a bricklayer. And, and mind you, it wasn't that there is something intrinsically wrong with being a carpenter, or a bricklayer. It's just that he uh, linked being a bricklayer and carpenter with my blackness. Well, and right?
1: completely limited your options. I mean, just as if you'd had a sister, she could have been a teacher or a, a nurse, maybe. Absolutely. Secretary, maybe three. We we all get three. We get three. Secretary, nurse, (laughs) and
0: teacher, maybe. Right, right. So so, so what we've got then is a kind of enduring across space and across contexts where there is this feeling uh, of being occluded, of being forlorn, of being alienated from my own desires and from who I want to be.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the the lure of philosophy, and sort of in retrospect, why that was more of a draw than maybe sociology or psychology.
0: I, I think that um, I think that what happened it was it was the the kinds of questions that philosophers pose. So um, while the sociologists might pose questions about you know the the social sphere. Uh, questions of economics, um, questions of what does it mean to play certain roles. Um, so here the work of Irving Goffman, for an example, uh, or, or psychology, you know, it, it, we can go as far as Freud in posing questions about the unconscious. But what, what's interesting, of course, is that there is a level at which sociology becomes, for example, the sociology of knowledge, or where psychology begins to approach the philosophical uh, let's say through the, the work of uh, Sigma Freud and uh, Carl Jung, right, there are questions that are being asked, but the way in which I was, let's say, thinking about sociology at that early stage uh, when I discovered that there was this field called philosophy or about psychology or anthropology or any of these other areas, they weren't asking the kinds of questions that resonated with me, those deep questions about the meaning of death and why we die, and does god exist and if god does exist how can we prove it and given the the multiplicity of religious systems from buddhism hinduism christianity zoroastrianism islam you know sikhism how do we know which religious system gives us the truth right how do we know which of those religious systems doxology or what's called its eschatology its view about the end of things or its soteriological theories, its theories of salvation. How do we know which one of those, which which one of those, happens to be true? And the meaning of life, right? Why are we here? Which is a question I'm still very deeply troubled by, right? And don't have a clear answer. So I think it was the the synoptic broad um, structure of those questions that. Uh, where uh, it, it was it was in terms of that broadness where I was gravitated toward philosophy as opposed to sociology or psychology and any of those other disciplines.
1: I hadn't really thought about this before, but do you feel like in philosophy there's some kind of... You talk about um, it needing to become more sort of relevant, um, and, and I hadn't put together with this thought of the idea that it's more um, intellectual, rather than maybe practical, you could say, as psychology and sociology might be. And that in a way, although it relates to all individuals, there might be a disconnection for the individual with their relationship to philosophy if they aren't someone who's just naturally interested in it.
0: Absolutely. And I think this was uh, sort of a a problem with philosophy more generally, so that when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, which is where I went, um, a guidance counselor, Suggested I study at the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford, um, but she had no idea that the University of Pittsburgh was one of the best philosophy departments in the country. Uh, maybe second to Princeton. Some say, you know, it, it was better than Princeton, and uh, but she wanted me to go there again because it was a small environment, so I went to the branch campus at Bradford. But when I finally went to the main campus, um, yes, I'd have to agree that the kinds of questions that the philosophers in that department were considering, questions that tended to be along the lines of what's called analytic philosophy, where they do conceptual analysis, a kind of analysis of, of, of concepts of what they meant in a way that was conceptual minutiae, I thought, right? Um, and even questions that were broader, like, you know, questions of whether God exists, even those were uh, reduced to a certain kind of analytic um, treatment that where I felt that there wasn't much at stake in terms of whether answering the questions to whether God exists, so yeah, you're because, right.
1: Because you know the man on the street, there's not one, or woman, who isn't thinking about why am I here, what am I here That's for, right. is there That's God, right. and yet there seems to be this huge chasm between that and then then philosophy, you know, yeah. as, a, as a academic, you know, a- absolutely. Of study. Absolutely.
0: And I think that's that's a critique that we have to launch against philosophy, even in its current instantiation. The idea that philosophers are specialists, or that philosophers have become professionalized, or that they are a small community that speak a very private, if you will, kind of language that is irrelevant to people who don't identify as professional philosophers but ask these questions all the time. So for me, that's what I've been trying to do by considering issues regarding race, considering issues concerning whiteness, and a way of communicating to my students how the question of death and the question of finitude, aren't these abstractions that a small community of professional, you know, PhD-certified philosophers concern themselves with. The, the dreaded but, intellectual elite. Yeah, that's right, the dreaded intellectual And by the way, in philosophy, philosophers tend to be very elitist, right? In fact, the field still has this kind of association with the elite. It's like, you know, we're over there in the corner doing this abstract, otherworldly stuff that's completely irrelevant to the quotidian everyday life. But
1: pre-John so, John Kerry elite was a good thing. It's right, right. <laughs> a Right,
0: right. So, so well, and, and my attempt, and, and just not my attempt, but the attempt of African-American philosophers and philosophers of color and women philosophers, uh, they have attempted, um, I think, to and we have succeeded in making philosophy relevant to those, to those individuals who are living their lives, not in the academy, but living their lives precisely outside the academy. So in many ways, there's a kind of retreat back to um, the days of Socrates where he would find himself in the emporium, in the marketplace, engaging with Athenians and asking them questions about you know, what kind of lives they want to lead lives of virtue, or lives you know, filled with um, reputation and wealth. So there's a way in which, I think, um, coming out of a pragmatist tradition with John Dewey and, and uh, William James, where there is uh, an implicit critique of philosophy as professionalization and therefore moving away from, if you will, and this is not to be construed in a negative way, the common person, right, the person who is quotidian, who finds him or herself squarely in the world, dealing with everyday everyday problems.
1: And so you found an identity. You dressed the part when you were in college. I loved that. I dressed mm. like a philosopher. And you chose a specific area of, of philosophy that you felt, it seems, maybe was more connected with the, the common
0: man. Yeah. The, and and by the way, that I, I, thanks for picking up on the, the dressing part. <laughs> um, you know, I was something, I shouldn't say something, I was an oddball living, first of all, in Richard Allen Projects. And you have to realize, living amongst all of that squalor, here it is, this black kid who by age, you know, 16, 17, is reading philosophy when he's not supposed to read philosophy. In fact, he is not supposed to come out of Richard Allen Projects psychologically whole. He is not supposed to come out quite frankly alive right um and so this is what i'm dealing with so you know not only having the telescope was just perceived as weird um but when i took this course with uh, professor eugene fitzgerald who's a, who's a white male philosopher uh he wore these shoes and i thought you know i needed to wear those shoes too right i had to literally dress uh like a philosopher or how i understood a philosopher uh to, to dress right um but yes I think that my passion eventually shifted. When I was at the University of Pittsburgh, I was interested in what's called sense data theory, which is really this old question about whether, you know, if there's a tree that falls in a forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Or, you know, the apple, let's say, that's in your refrigerator, um, is it still red if you can't see it? Or is it sweet or bitter or sour if you don't taste it? Does it emit a sound if you don't tap on it, right? Is it smooth or not if you don't touch it? Uh, And these were really hot, interesting questions for me. Uh, But then when I went to Yale and I took a course in hermeneutics, which is uh, basically the, has to do with interpretation, biblical exegesis, um, I began to raise questions that were very important around science, right? So it wasn't any longer the question of, what do we say about the redness let's say of an apple and what do we make of that quality but it became questions like what do we make of the claims that scientists put forward like whether electrons exist or whether other subatomic particles particles exist and so i read i started reading thomas kuhn's work who talks about paradigms which then led me to questions about what are the conditions for the possibility of talking about things like electrons which then made me think about questions about history and the larger framework of culture, which then made, you know got me into asking the question about, wait a minute, what about the conditions for the possibility of my being black or my being raced? What does that mean? And of course, then that got me into questions of whiteness. So yes, the, the, the trajectory for me moved from more abstract, minute sorts of questions to questions that involve Deep and heavy existential questions about what it means to be raced in a, a white supremacist country like America.
1: And so when you were, yeah, w- were you aware of this did you, were you sort of aware of this whether was there an internal conflict, this idea of having survived the projects and leaving the projects behind and leaving them whole and and not only that, but as someone you said no one would have expected, you know, reading philosophy, becoming a philosopher um was that a, an internal battle that you were aware of at the time or was was there was that not happening
0: it was sort of an internal battle um to the extent that when even when I would go to to high school there were teachers who could not who did not understand the questions that I was asking i mean i wasn't doing well in in high school at all um average or even below average for that matter and that's i think part of the for me the the, the paradox um the strangeness of my being, how is it that I, you know, was not doing very well in chemistry, um, doing pretty well in biology, but not chemistry, not doing so great in in mathematics. But here I was, this, you know, this teenager in high school reading Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy, and wondering about the very structure of the universe, right? Deep metaphysical questions. And so my teachers, I would often ask my teachers, "Can can you help me understand this passage that you know, where Bertrand Russell was talking about Aristotle or Plato, and very few could, maybe one or two would actually, would actually, you know, help me understand that. And I think that was partly an enigma. I was an enigma to them, and I was becoming an enigma to myself. And so by the time I get to Yale, I'm surrounded by wealth. Uh, I'm surrounded by a sea of whiteness, right, Pr- predominantly white students who have gone to all the great schools who've done well, but, you know, here it is me academically not doing well at all, but yet having this edge, a a kind of, of being gifted, if you will, a certain kind of profound imagination and a profound passion for learning. And, you know, I've since thought about the term passion, as you know, if you look at the etymology, and I love etymologies, it means to suffer. As in Passion of the of the Christ, um, so there are ways in which I see philosophy and the questions that I was asking as a young boy as really a site of suffering. So for me then to move in the direction of race, uh, for me to move in the, to move in the direction of uh, questions of my own sexism or questions of whiteness or questions of militarism or questions of homophobia or general questions of hegemony and power. And being concerned with the least of these takes me all the way back to praying for the devil. You know what I mean? Because, you know, after all, again, the devil is without redemption. So it's interesting to me how there is this thread um, that is moving throughout my my growth, a certain kind of compassion.
1: So I want to... Add profound drive, too, because none of this was, although you're, you were gifted, it, you know, there's a lot of work and, and, um, <laughs> and difficulty. And so you, you, after, yeah, you're at the Philadelphia Tribune, and you are writing on the existence of God, time travel, rap music, and hip-hop culture, <laughs> and the meaning of yeah. death. Just just some light topics and variety, <laughs> not variety at all. Right, right. And then you get your PhD. I want to skip ahead um, to your uh, publication, Dear White America. Sure. And I'll just read a piece of it. Uh, just as my comfort in being male is linked to the suffering of women, which makes me sexist, so too you are racist. That is the gift I want you to accept to embrace. It is a form of knowledge that is taboo. Imagine the impact that the acceptance of this gift might have on you and the world. And I'm I'm just wondering. I want to spend a little time on on writing it and and what you had hoped to, um, if there was an intention as far as something that would come out of it, and then um, afterward what the response was.
0: Sure. Um, well, the. The the origin of that that piece um, came from a series of interviews that I had done with The Stone, the New York Times. Uh, a philosopher, Gad, uh, Gary Gutting, had done a series of interviews with uh, philosophers on religion, and I got this bright idea that hey, why not uh, do a series of interviews with philosophers who specialize in race, which of course which is of course my area. And um, you know the editor of The Stone said yes, uh, let's do it. And I. My assumption is that he thought that, you know, we'd do about two or three and just see how it goes. But they were so popular, right? Meaning people were just reading them and they were getting so many comments that we ended up doing 19 in total. You know, and I interviewed people like uh, Noam uh, uh, Noam Chomsky, Peter Singer, Judith Butler, uh, Anthony Appiah, Cornel West, Bell Hooks. Very prominent philosophers and public intellectuals. And so it was my time to write a piece. Um, Gary Gutting, when he wrote his last piece... He interviewed himself, which was a bit creative, but I thought, I'm not going to interview myself. Uh, I'm going to write a piece that, for me, focuses on what I thought was missed in terms of the interview. So I decided to entitle this piece Dear White America, and the objective was to write this missive in such a way that it was intimate. It was a letter that one could read, and it was a gesture of love. And I call it a gesture of love Um, based on Baldwin's James Baldwin's understanding, where he talks about love as this incredible capacity uh, to recognize that we live um, with these masks that we are afraid to remove, and yet we know we can't live with them. And so in essence, Dear White America is a letter, a love letter, was asking white people to remove their masks, uh, masks that obfuscated and that covered over their racism And one way in which I attempted to disarm or at least share in mutual vulnerability was to say to to white people in that letter that, look, I'm a sexist, which means, which doesn't mean that I hate women, obviously, um, but I can't divorce the ways in which I have been acculturated in a male supremacist society to objectify women's bodies. This is part of male DNA, a cultural DNA that we do this. So I can't completely rid myself of that. While at the same time, I can't step outside of the systems of patriarchy that are already in place that oppress women. So that was the aim. The aim was a letter of love to make myself vulnerable, which means to wound. So I was trying to wound myself openly, right? Um, Turns out, when the letter came out within a day or within hours, maybe, uh, there was this influx of hate mail uh, that came uh, in the form of voice messages, that came in the form of email messages, and that actually came in the form of letters. So many whites actually sat down to write a letter in longhand just to call me the N-word. So, I mean, I was, it it was something I'd never experienced in my life before. Now, I knew about racism. I know about the the terrors of white supremacy. I understood that. But for the first time in my life, um, because it was so much, because there was such an influx of hatred and white vitriol, it had an impact on my physiology in ways that I had not anticipated.
1: Uh, George, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about taking off that mask and what keeps us from doing that. And also, um, you know, what it was like, you said actually you had physical responses and also this world of social media, because maybe that wasn't, that was the element you hadn't been prepared for, right? That that, mm, that's sure. a game changer. That, yes, that's absolutely. changed everything. All right. So, so we'll be back in just a moment. This is Ellie Newman on that got me thinking I'm speaking with professor and author philosopher George Yancey, and we'll be back in just a moment, so stick with us. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, community-supported radio. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman, and I'm speaking with philosopher, professor, author George Yancey, and we're just talking about um, the impetus and then the um, occurrence and then the aftermath of his publication of Dear White America, and so, George, I want to start with like, the idea of how, how much you had thought beforehand about how difficult it is to take off that mask, and especially um, in this case where you're asking white America to do so, and you know there's got to be right, so much guilt and shame and possible fear and all of these like, huge emotions around it. Were you thinking about that at the time of constructing the letter?
0: I uh, I was. Um, but I have to say what I, what I didn't anticipate – now, as someone who teaches, you know, courses, grad courses in critical whiteness studies and critical philosophy of race and phenomenology of the black body, um, if you had asked me, I would have said, yes, I'll get some pushback. But I didn't anticipate the, the level and the tone of threats, and I didn't anticipate the number of of threats. I mean, I was inundated, and inundated to the point where, as I may have mentioned uh, elsewhere, that I had to have police presence during the talks that I gave. Um, I had to, you know, the FBI got involved. Um, you know, I, I had I had police officers, uh, you know, uh, Emory uh, security who would walk, do a little sweep around my office. Um, So while I anticipated some pushback, I had not anticipated the level of violent discourse.
1: And, and I guess right? that's going to be a question for another show, where we aren't going to be able to get to the other matter, but I mean, it is a huge question. Has yeah. something changed? Is it reality TV? Is it the way of social media? Is it the anonymity that brings yeah. out, you know, you all have to watch mean tweets and these awful yeah. things people are saying to these celebrities, or even Brene Brown with her TED Talk, and people were saying, oh, of course she's, you know, interested in vulnerability because she's so fat and ugly and niches. Yeah. These things that are so disconnected with the person and the message that they're trying to deliver. Absolutely. And I so, think so, that came out in the election, right? We all saw that there was so much more of this sort of exaggerated and um, I don't even know like, what, more, yeah. more, more extensive hate that people were willing to, to, to sort of bombard people publicly with.
0: Yeah, and, and I, think, I think social media has something to do with it. Um, I think that, and of course, that for me is part of the problem, uh, because, you know, when you're on social media, there is an anonymity. There is a way in which you can hide behind that. Um, some people, believe it or not, actually put their real names, uh, listed their real name. I'm assuming real names because they sent me uh, these these letters. Um so I mean I guess they gave me the, the option of writing a long hand letter back, right? But I wouldn't after calling me the N-word. It wouldn't wouldn't make sense. But I think that's right. But you know for me that's part of the problem. Well, it's a form go, go no you go ahead. Yeah, it's it's a form of hiding. So when you asked me about taking off the masks, I mean, look, Baldwin says to to act is to be committed and to be committed is to be in danger. And I think that for white people to realize that there are ways in which, because they're a part of white racist America, that makes them racist. Just the way in which I'm a sexist because I'm a part of a sexist systemic process. It's that fear, right? It. it, it and well, or says or, 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 or maybe if
1: you could say, I could just say, if we could temper yeah. this so people can jump more on the bandwagon. If, if complicit, right? That they're yes. complicit in the racism, even if they... I mean, I think every single person on this planet has prejudice and racism, right? It's all yeah. a matter of degree, and yeah. it's focused in different areas. And, and even if we are working our best to not be racist or to be prejudiced in, in towards a specific group, right, we still may be complicit. Yes. And you so, talked about um, Robert Jensen, what he said about... If mm. you might talk a little bit like that, I thought that was such a great example,
0: yeah, no, absolutely. So, and you know, and and Stephanie Wildman, uh, she goes as as far as to say, "Look, um, I'm a racist." She says she's white, uh, and she's and and she's Jewish, and says, "Look, I'm racist because part of racism means to be systemic." But I like your term complicity. It's an excellent term, and it, and it says that no matter how liberated we think we are, in this case, is white people, or in 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 my case, as a male. There are ways in which we are complicit. There are ways in which the blood is still on our hands, right? And that's what I wanted white people to see, to begin to challenge their identities as somehow beyond racism. So at the end of the day, what I argue is that the best that white people can be are anti-racist racists. And, of course, the anti-racism is the part where whites actually fight against racism, but the racist part at the end is the part that says you're still complicit. And that for me then, the best that I can become is an anti-sexist sexist, because while I fight against sexism, there's a way in which my sexism is still complicit with forms of patriarchy.
1: And I think you have to have a strong sense of self to be able to do that.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. and I, I, don't think we, I don't think we have that. And, and uh, getting back to your question about anonymity, your point about anonymity, The problem in America is that we don't know each other. I mean, my claim has always been that whites and blacks don't know each other. According to one stat, less than 10% of whites have black friends. And I think that what we need in this country, and I don't think we're going to see, it. in fact, I know we're not going to see it a post-Trump election um, or a post-Obama, let's say now. Uh, What we'll see is far more divisiveness, far more estrangement within this culture. We're 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 going to precisely undo the boldness and the kind of shared humanity that is necessary for us to see this world, you know, as far more unified and 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 really uh, suffering.
1: They did a study at Stanford that that demonstrated that even sharing the love of of a particular book would help to bridge the gap between two diverse races or or ethnicities, and Brian Stevenson in one of his talks, an American lawyer, social justice activist, has an incredible example of walking into a prison to see one of his clients and where there's this guard who's got a Confederate flag flying on his van and he's admittedly and proudly racist and, and demeaning to this attorney, and yet he goes to court and hears Stevenson speaking about one of his clients who grew up in foster care and the next time Stevenson shows up, he opens the door for him. He's calling him, sir. He couldn't be more helpful because he had grown up in a foster home as well. And there was this mm. connection and understanding built. It was incredible.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, that is that is incredible. I, you know, I remember um, a, Latina, a Latina grad student, philosophy, asked me the question right after all of this hate mail. Mail. She asked me, why do you continue to concern yourself with white people? And it was an incredible question, especially after the vitriol and the weight of it. And I looked at her, and it was hard to answer. And I said, I do it for my children, and I do it for the children of white people. So for me, that comparable sharedness is the innocence of our children. And if we can develop this a, a kind of love and to understand that we are really looking out Uh, for our children and to cultivate in our children a Different kind of affect and a different kind of perspective on the world. You know, perhaps perhaps that's the the shared um, Space right our children. That's the shared love that we can show for our children and, And I
1: hadn't thought about this about your letter until now but the idea that until we acknowledge that we are racist right we can't yes. solve racism, and I thought that that was something that was very apparent in the election. Um, afterwards, these two women in uh, West Virginia won the mayor and the other gal who was the head of a nonprofit, who said these very racist things, posted them, and then and there was a, a coffee shop owner in Montana, same thing. And then you know they were all fired. His coffee shop is closed, but they are feeling attacked because they swear up and down they aren't racist. They didn't mean mm. these comments in a racist manner. <laughs> You're just shaking yeah, your head thinking, okay, there is a disconnect there because I think they must believe or people who, who you know, I've bowed with this idea of people who voted for Trump. How can you not, how can you vote for him and say you aren't sexist, you aren't racist? Yeah, and sure. yet it's, it's this idea, well, it's, it's priorities. I guess there are two different questions. But one is, you know, with the Trump thing, it's they, they value things other than that more, right? Economics sure. or something else. But in sure. these situations, back to the mask of these women and this man in Montana, who hmm. may at some level believe they didn't mean it in a racist way, or they, they aren't racist, and they're offended by that. What, what would you say to that based on your, your experience and your studies?
0: Yeah, I'd say that I'd use the the term that Jean-Paul Sartre uses, the French existentialist. He calls it bad faith, and bad faith is this position where we deny our freedom, where we're afraid, in fact, to see our freedom. In this case, they're afraid to admit that they are racists, uh, and so what they do is they occlude or obfuscate their racism by saying the most racist, blatant stuff, and then saying things like, but I'm not a racist, right? I mean... And and that, of course, becomes the problem. So what I'm asking white people to do, and even men, right, who are sexist, I'm asking them to become vulnerable, which means to be open to be wounded. And by the way, in that letter, I never said that, and you didn't say that I said, but I never said that that white people ought to feel guilt. Because you see, because that's too easy to feel guilt. I mean, it's possible, you see, for white people to feel guilt. And then not to do anything about it. Oh, oh, exactly. Racism.
1: And that, and and you didn't say that, but I think that's the reason we keep our masks on, right? Those three things. We we're gonna we feel guilty about something that's true, or we're afraid that something's true because that then makes us a bad person, because being racist is a bad thing.
0: Absolutely, and, and that's absolutely right. And that's what I again I try to make clear is that look, I'm not saying that white people are evil by nature. I mean that would be silly. Um, I'm not saying that you're somehow, that one is somehow deeply unethical if one is white. Now we can't completely take away the the ethical implications of what it means to be white and racist, but I wasn't primarily saying that. The, the focus was on at least come to terms with, own, with, 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 with one's own racism, at least try to develop a level of honesty, because honesty can be painful. And I think we want to flee those things because we think to be racist. Well, I shouldn't say we think, but uh, white people after sort of a post-civil rights movement, that the last thing they want to be accused of is being racist. But it's not, you know, don't get hung up on the term. One ought to get hung up on one's actions that are either implicit or explicit that help to perpetuate racism, or in the case of men, that help to perpetuate sexism. And so I think that's what it is. And now shame, of course, can work to unhinge one's identity. I think shame is a much more of an interesting emotion than guilt. Because again, one can feel guilty and continue, but to feel shame is a level of of humiliation that can be very positive. It's a it's a level of coming to terms with one's own um, off, uh, attempt to obfuscate one's own racism, well, and, and but then it's that attached to their stuff.
1: personhood, right?
0: It's That's sharing. right. So no, absolutely. So then and, and you're absolutely right. So because shame is so attached to one's personhood, I think one, it becomes more frightening than to take off the mask, but the beauty of taking off the mask, I know it's it, it, it sounds oxymoronic to talk about the beauty of suffering, but there is beauty in suffering. It has an aesthetic dimension to the extent that one opens up one's perception, which is sort of the original meaning of aesthetics, it's to open up one's perception of all the ways in which one is a broken vessel. And I think if we all are able to do that, right, to admit that we are broken vessels and that the system that we live in perpetuates that brokenness, and certainly under Trump's administration, that brokenness, for me, will be more severed, right? It'll be, it be more stark than we've ever seen, because we've never, quite frankly, seen anything like this before.
1: It'll be more apparent and visible, right? Like I, I uh, thought I just thought that when you said it, it's engaging the demons right out there in the light. It, it, I, I, we took absolutely. off the mask.:
0: Absolutely. you know, I did a, I did a series of interviews of, of of families who were not going home for Thanksgiving uh, because they had a relative who voted for Trump. Right. Either they voted for Trump and hence they weren't going home or they had relatives who refused to to come home because they just couldn't face their families. And again, it becomes a very personal issue for me. Personally, I see Trump as um, as an existential threat. I mean, that's my opinion. Um, He is, for me, um, he's a sexist. I mean, he's a racist. He's a xenophobe um, and a queerphobe, if you will, an ableist. And part of the, the pain that families feel, I remember there was, there was one And he's young,
1: irresponsible, right? Yes. Like for, so I, for his speech and his actions.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and and you see, there is no vulnerability there, right? There is no owning of that. So Trump is the quintessence of of bad faith. But because he has so much power now, that becomes an existential threat that none of us can afford. But there were there was there was one woman who called in and said, you know. I want to meet with my my mother and father. But the hard part is that they voted for Trump. And yet they taught me how wrong it was to be sexist, to be racist, to be xenophobic. And I think that says so much, right? And this is why people, I think, are really finding it so difficult. I mean, how do you... Teach your child not to be a sexist or racist and yet vote for Trump.
1: Because I, I came to terms with that finally after a number of weeks. And so my husband finally said, Ellie, you've got to like let you know lighten up, let it go, figure it out. And I thought, okay, it, it's about priority of values. So yes, he may be all those things, and maybe they at their core are not or don't believe in them. But what other things that he stands for or potential that he stands for, they value that as a higher priority for them in their hierarchy of needs or values than those other things. It's more relevant to their lives than these other things. And that's I think where this humanity's disconnect may lie.
0: Sure. And and I would only add, I would only I would only question that at one level, and that is, as I was thinking about this as well, and I was thinking about you know the rust belt and how so many white um, working-class individuals voted for Trump, and even he got 53% of white women, right? Yeah, I've, got, I've got theories to, on that. Right, <laughs> to vote <for> him. <laughs> And, and uh, as I was thinking about working-class whites or poor whites who voted for him, you're right, I think there's a way in which they prioritize, let's say, the economic, the, the economic, in terms of in terms of their life, life lifestyles, and of course, we ought to be I, as Americans. I, I
1: think that's the the wealthy white who justify it that way. That somehow these economic concerns are higher. I think for that middle America, I think they're angry, feel they've been drowning, and no one cared. I think that's what we were back sure. to at the beginning. This idea of rural versus urban elite,
0: and no, there's right. this. That's right. So. So I'd agree that the, the binary is there too—the urban versus the, you know, the, the the rural versus the urban, right? The non-elites versus the elites. But the, and but also I think that they are suffering um, economically. But that that feeling of being uh, excluded. But but here's the problem with that. Trump was able not only to speak to their needs and their feelings of estrangement, but he was also able to speak to their whiteness, because his rhetoric. Um, cannot be analyti- analytically parsed out. Uh, you can't analytically parse out his, his economic appeal versus his white racist appeal. So my my argument is that it wasn't as if, you know, some working class white was at home saying, well, I'm urban, I've been forgotten, uh, and that was the metric alone. It was a metric that came with uh, making America great, which becomes a tr- a trope, for making America white again, as if somehow it Absolutely. was never white. Absolutely, and
1: this, this false sense of victimization that it was yes. these others, these urban elites and the Hispanics and the blacks and every other Muslim and any other um, different ethnic or racial identity that is to blame for their situation, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, a a so marrying
1: for me, of Nazi Germany, that it, it's the fault of other that you have yeah, your situation. Oh, absolutely.
0: Excellent, excellent point. In fact, uh, that squares with my notion of whiteness as what I call whiteness as being structurally binary. And by structurally binary, I mean that whiteness is a structure such that it needs the other. It needs the other upon which... Um, it is able to project all of its hatred, all of its dissatisfaction, all of its existential angst. So the then the the, the, the Muslim is needed. The black body is needed. the The undocumented immigrant is needed. So it becomes a, a us uh, versus them. And this is the way whiteness has worked in Europe. This is the way whiteness has work, has worked during the founding of this country, where there's the need for the other. There's a need for a host so then whiteness becomes parasitic so i think you're right i think that that structural binary is consistent with the idea of of whiteness being a part of trump's meta narrative and also this feeling that they were they have been left out of the loop somehow
1: And I want to talk in in our last few minutes to focus on institutionalized racism because I was thinking a lot about the idea of other types of prejudice that existed in America's history and in other um, countries' histories where there was a a group that was singled out. I mean, in early America, the Italians or the Chinese or the Polish or among these groups, um, prejudice that each had against the other, right? There was sort of created within this group an other Um, Whomever it might be chosen for in Mexico, the Mayans, and and throughout history. Mm, Um, mm. But I was thinking, but the the situation between black and white has a different element to it um, Mm. because of slavery and because then of the institutionalized racism that grew out of that. And I just want to maybe focus on that for a few minutes, and then you know what what now? (laughs) Where do we go from here?
0: No, excellent. Um, So there's what you're picking up on. I think is a very important point, I think that many cultures have have experienced what we might call a form of xenophobia, fear of the stranger. So there's ways in which communities, because they're communities, you know, are very insular and therefore exclude, tend to exclude others. Um, One might argue that white supremacy, at least it manifests in the United States, is a kind of hyper form of xenophobia. But I agree with you. I mean, after all, uh, I mean, Toni Morrison makes this point that that had blacks not existed in the United States, the Irish and the Italians would have ripped each other apart, right? And by that she means that the black body stood in as the common hated body. So it's the, the black body around which the Irish, the Italians were able to solidify their whiteness. So it was precisely in giving up their ethnicity and giving up their cultures, um, changing their names, that the Italians and the Irish, and some could even argue that ways in which contemporary Asians, uh, in this case case Chinese, the way in which they are identifying and expressing certain forms of anti-blackness is a kind of form of symbolically becoming white. Because remember in, in 1882, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. So America has had this history of othering, but whiteness functions as this site of solidarity, and who is it that is left out of that solidarity? It tends to be black bodies, because I think that blackness functions as a site of the, the, the far left, right? There's a way in which the black body is the damned of the earth, the wretched of the earth, the embodiment of Satan, the embodiment of evil, the embodiment of criminality. So if you look at this, if you read Frantz Fanon, if you read any of these individuals, uh, post-colonial theorists, the idea is that the black body has become so um, identified with evil is that all the other groups, Latino, Asian, etc., they're in the middle, but the black body is the extreme left. So I think that what needs to happen in this country is is what Baldwin says that, again, to act is to be committed and to, com- and to be committed is to be in danger, that white people have to live lives of danger. And by that, I mean, I think he meant is to be prepared to critique and to rethink their identities and to know that whiteness is predicated on the dehumanization of black bodies. So the idea is to shift one's perspective and to begin to look at the internal motives around whiteness and how it operates as a structural binary. But that's going to require a level of honesty that I'm not sure white America is prepared to do. And again, now that Trump is president-elect and will soon become president, it's not clear to me that we'll be able to create those spaces where white people are allowed to be vulnerable unless of course they're done on a small scale as I do in my classrooms where I try to create what I call dangerous spaces, spaces where white people get to to become honest in 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 a space where there are people of color and we get to share our vulnerabilities and we begin to face up to the ways in which we are complicit and the ways in which we can do something about that complicity.
1: And I think that's a, a huge thing because I was thinking about indifference versus inability. And I was thinking about the magnitude of the the, the problem and that even you, you know, they're saying, oh, it's, it's going to be even more difficult. And so often when something is, the magnitude is so overwhelming, you're much more likely to put the mask on tighter, right? Close your eyes and look the other mm. way. Because Excellent. if you don't feel that it's something that you can have any impact on mm. you know you may get to the place of sort of why I try i'm thinking you're going deep into the dark night of the soul <laughs>
0: mm, absolutely and, and you know by the way that notion of the deepness of the, the darkness of the soul is actually a, it's it, it it can be positive in as much as it it is this moment of great anxiety and a great moment of fear uh and 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 trepidation where, because one doesn't know exactly what the end is going to be. But you're right, I think under a Trump administration, those masks will be pulled down tighter, people will become what I call, whites will become more sutured, rather than unsutured, right? Which is what we need to happen. We need whites to become unsutured, to open up, and to allow all all of that anxiety and those fears to come out and to confront them. But it's not just an intellectual project, it's not just cognitive, it's an affective project. It's a project, it seems to me, that, have, that has to be founded on some notion of love that is prepared to risk. And that's powerful, right? Because it, it, it's really the aspiration to be a better human being. And I think that's what we're really, that's what I'm asking for, that's what I try to do in my classrooms, to, cr- to create a space where people are able to share their pain. And out of that sharing, out of that shared pain, uh, a better human being emerges, where you don't need that mask, right? Where you say, look, I'm going to give up this mask for the purpose of becoming a better human being for myself and for creating a level of sociality and a level of community that is one that approaches, at least, the beloved community that Martin Luther King spoke about.
1: And, and that founds out, right myself, my family, my friends, my community, the world, and make it a better place. And I think the distinctions important because you said fear and trepidation, which is different than when you said, the more I enter into that space of the dark night of the soul, a place where dread and hopelessness reside, because if there's dread and hopelessness, then we give up right Absolutely. if 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 there if it's scary and daunting and um asks us to be vulnerable, if there's a
0: shred of light of hope, right, then, mm-hmm. then we, we go on. Oh, a- absolutely. And, and, and for me, it, it's, you know, hope is, so, so I, I might say with Cornell West, he says, uh, optimism, I'm, I'm not, I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic because that's an extrapolation based on the past. So I'm not optimistic. But hope, hope is to look at the abyss, to stare it down, right, to look into that darkness to look into what doesn't seem to be an out or an opening at all and yet to hold on to that hope to live that hope every day of one's life to go to bed in pain to go to bed suffering over over the massive suffering of humanity that that requires a level of stamina and yet and yet a level of vulnerability where you're able to look pain and suffering uh, in the face and say, but yet I will continue. I will attempt to transform this world because it can be transformed and I can do it. But that—that that is, for me, the, the, the life of hope. Life, the, life of hope in action is to keep pushing forward, no matter the roadblocks, no matter how dark uh, and impossible it might be. I mean, that's what hope is. Hope is looking the impossible in the face and proceeding as if it is not impossible.
1: And to shoulder the discomfort, right? That yes, there is suffering, and it doesn't mean that it's beneficial for us to take on that suffering or that we have to lie in that suffering and pain, but we take on the discomfort of it and look at it as for what it is so that then we can move beyond it and bring others with us, right?
0: Absolutely. All
1: right, we're going to have to do another show where we are specific and constructive. This is what people can do. (laughs) Because I think that's important. I think people need to feel like they know what they can do. What steps can I take? What small actions? Where does it start? Where does it lead? You know, what, what does the progression look like? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. George, for joining me on the show. It was a real, real pleasure speaking with you. And, and yeah, before you. we end, maybe just what's what's on your docket for the future? What are you working oh. on?
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm writing a new book. Uh, it's called Dear White America, <laughs> uh, and it, it stems from the the letter. So it's it's going to be it's it'll include the letter itself, and then it will include um, all of the the vitriolic responses. So it's going to be a bit tough for some people to read, um, but I think we have to face that reality. And then I'll write about um, more about this notion of what I see as unsuturing and what whites need to do. And then um, there, there's a book on uh, the conversations that I had uh, with philosophers at the Stone that's coming out with Oxford University Press. So I'll, I'll be busy.
1: You'll be busy. It's wonderful. And I hope you'll come back and share your work with us again. Certainly. All right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum, community-supported radio.